Our scripture reading today comes from John chapter 10, verses 1 through 21. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay, my, lay down my life for the sheep, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. So today is, is the fourth Sunday in Easter, and this passage, it, it may seem out of place to you, but this is actually, we're right on schedule. This is where our reading schedule has us in John 10. For the last three weeks, we've been looking at the resurrection accounts as the various gospel writers have recorded them. One of the major focuses that we've been having uh, is how Christ is recognized to his disciples. That is, when Christ appears to Mary Magdalene, it says, as this passage uh, also brings out, Jesus Christ says to Mary, he calls her by name. He says, Mary. And it's in that moment that she she recognizes who the Lord is. We've looked in years past at the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, how the disciples were walking with Jesus and they were spending time with him, listening to his teaching and his expounding of the Old Testament. Uh, probably the greatest um, uh, teaching unveiled on the earth at the time, uh, a teaching which was mostly missed by the disciples and 
completely off of their radar that Christ was the Messiah and Emmanuel, these two great threads through the Old Covenant that God needs to come and be near his people somehow, but the problem of sin must be dealt with, and also that there is this Messiah or the, the anointed one to sit on the throne of his father, David. Christ is teaching them, he's explaining to them that these two great threads of, of anticipation in the Old Covenant scriptures have actually been fulfilled in him. And as great as that teaching is, which we're going to see in a few weeks replay out as in Peter's discourse of the day of Pentecost, as great as that teaching is, Christ is known to them not in the teaching in that story, but rather at the breaking of bread. And this teaches us about the, fellow, the importance of the fellowship that we have at the Lord's Supper when we commune with him. This is a great focus of our, this year's uh, celebration of Easter is how is Christ recognized? But Christ is not recognized in, so that we would only know Christ. Christ is recognized in order to bring us into a love relationship with the Father. And this love relationship is what gives pattern to and it gives the foundation for all of Christian life. And so that's what we're going to be looking at today. At the very beginning of this passage, we hear Jesus explaining his authority and mission and vision for his ministry in the terms of a shepherd, a shepherd who takes care of his sheep. And if you remember last week, we saw Jesus in his restoration with Peter. We saw how Jesus, although he was calling them no longer to simply be fishers of men, but also shepherds like unto him, uh, being opposed to the false shepherds of Israel and the Pharisees. Uh, Christ then himself commands Peter to tend to these lambs, to be a co-shepherd or an under-shepherd along with Christ. And so the question now is, okay, well, what does it mean to be a shepherd like Jesus is a shepherd? And we don't have any doubt about what that is. Jesus actually connects his shepherding with the resurrection. And that's why, although this passage isn't a resurrection narrative, it is a teaching from the Lord's very mouth about what it means for him to be a shepherd in the sacrificial death and the resurrection from the dead, which is done to unleash the love of the Father on this flock that Christ himself is calling, calling and drawing. Christ in this passage demolishes, absolutely demolishes, the authority of false shepherds, those who are really like wolves who come in. He calls them thieves and robbers, and the designation of thieves and robbers is quite important. Thieves and robbers is intended to invoke this idea of the, the level of corruption and conspiracy that is going on in these false teachers. They're in league with Satan, the enemy that Christ names in this very same passage, the, the enemy which seeks to scatter the flock. And so these wolves or false shepherds who come in seek to draw people away to themselves. And Christ has no problem with rebuking them and their teaching. And in fact, he actually identifies the mark of a good shepherd as one who would warn the flock and protect the flock and guard it. Christ himself says he is the door. He is the one who controls access to the flock. And so it's necessary that we examine this parable. Now, this, this is really a, a, an amount of teaching that is given in the form of imagery. But I just want to make it very clear that imagery in both the way that Jesus uses it and the rest of the Bible is intended to say that it's not that Christ is like a shepherd. It is the case that God created sheep 
and shepherds so that they could symbol forth or image forth something true about the nature of Jesus Christ and his great care for the church. And this care, as we will see, actually makes its way back through redemptive history into the very nature of the love relationship between father and son. And so we're going to actually be doing um, what is probably atypical for most sermons. We're actually going to spend a lot of time at the end discussing the nature of God. And at first, it may not seem why it's applicable to you. But I would just encourage you that I, um, I was witnessing with somebody on Friday night and we were just sharing about the the faith and things about the Lord. And I kind of gave a list of the things that God's blessed me with to do in life. I've been blessed in, in various ways with a number of different opportunities and jobs and education opportunities and schooling and trips and vacations. I've seen amazing magic shows. I've been to amazing concerts. I've done sinful worldly things. I've done glorious and holy things. But none of the graces of God, although they didn't come through the sin, none of the graces of God in my life have ever been so profound as the deep meditation upon the nature of the Father and the Son, their eternal harmony and love as that explodes out in a redemptive mission to save people who rebel against the Father. And so I would just encourage you that maybe at first this might not seem very applicable to your life, but you were made to know God and you were made to meditate upon this love. And it's actually Christ's intention that you would be a part of this love, that, that John 17 would come true for the Lord as we know it will, that his disciples, the ones that he keeps, they would be in the very same love with, that the Father has for the Son, that that would be their love among themselves and with him. And so I would just encourage you to give yourself to contemplating on the things that we're going to be talking about, especially at the end of the passage. So Christ uh, describes himself as shepherding, and this shepherding actually concerns the mission of the church. For the last four weeks, we've been looking at how Christ is commissioning the disciples. About three weeks ago, we saw Christ say to the disciples, as the Father has sent me, so also I'm sending you. And that, that word as is an adverbial phrase that just describes the way and nature and manner of his sending mission. This mission is to follow Christ and witness of his love in the world. And we see this a little bit in Revelation 14. We see a group of people that Christ has cared for himself. He's he's protected and, and preserved them. And it says that they follow the lamb wherever he goes. And this idea is not that Christ in heaven is taking little trips through the clouds. This idea is that the lamb is going on mission into the world. And that lamb going on mission has actually inspired a great amount of art and and imagery and song throughout the life of the church. Um, if you've ever seen perhaps some of, especially the Anglican symbolism and imagery, there is a lamb who is carrying a, cro- a little tiny cross and he's walking forward in victory. And this is the victory of God, a victory that looks completely foolish to the world. You don't send a lamb at the beginning of your uh, triumphal march into battle. And yet this is the very lamb of God. He sacrifices himself in order to take the hit, as we'll see, for his people. And we follow him in like manner, preaching a gospel that is exactly the same and living often in many ways sacrificial lives that not only figuratively, but sometimes look exactly like Christ 
in the idea of laying down our lives. Verse 3 of John 10, To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. The sheep are led out to pasture, but they're also led out to follow the shepherd, to be with the shepherd, and to live like him. Verse 4, when, when he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee for, from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, at first, if this all sounds very poetic and um, a little confusing, you're in good company. Uh, the disciples don't get it uh, right away. And so Jesus then begins to unpack what this means. And I would just, if you're becoming a student of scripture, I'd just encourage you to look at the parallelism here. Christ two times says he is the door. And then two times after that, he says, I am the good shepherd. And so we're going to look at those parallel structures in the, in the passage. But the, the important thing to understand that in Christ's leadership of the church, he calls the sheep by name. And he doesn't just say, my sheep. He calls the sheep by name individually. When one is straying, he goes after them. When, when a group of them have gone away, he calls them back to himself. If they are true sheep, they know his voice, and they do not listen to the voice of strangers. And so it is imperative for us to understand this personal relationship with the Lord. Now, much of the modern church has overemphasized this aspect of Christianity, but I just want to caution you that whenever you encounter an error, the greatest and easiest thing to do, which is actually an error itself, is to react to that error so far that you swing the pendulum to the other side and so get off into the other ditch. It doesn't help you if you're in the right ditch to get up, clean yourself off, go down the road, and then veer off into the left ditch. You need to stay on the road. And the middle road in this aspect is though we believe in God's covenant, though we understand that God is, is at work in saving a people, he also is interested in you and he calls you by name. That's, that's why it's so important that we see Mary recognizes the Lord when, when Christ says Mary, when he declares her name and speaks it to her. And so not only does he know their names, but he knows them personally. In the Bible, knowing a name is synonymous with or identical to knowing a person, having intimate knowledge, knowledge that is friendly and personal. Therefore, if we're known by Christ, if we truly are his sheep, we ought not to follow shepherds who don't sound anything like Christ. And this is so prevalent today, and I would just encourage you to turn off your televisions if there is a preacher on them. I would almost be willing to say that's a blanket statement completely and totally. The reason why is because so many of these teachers today who are using national broadcasting techniques, whether it be radio, internet, or television, um, they, they do this in such a way as to accumulate power and money to themselves. I have seen so many evil examples of this that it, it's heart-wrenching to see. If you go on YouTube and you just put in false teacher and then you look at for any amount of time, you can find some very disgusting, idolatrous stuff. I saw one video a few weeks ago in which a false teacher in the prosperity gospel movement is actually dancing on dollar bills that are lining the stage of the, the sanctuary in that synagogue of Satan. And he's dancing on it, saying that he's putting the anointing on the money. And, and this, this doctrine is that if you give to these teachers, you're sowing a seed with the Lord. And by sowing that seed to the Lord, you then will be blessed. 
Brothers and sisters, Christ did not suffer on a cross for you to have cash. And, and yet, many of us tolerate these types of teachers and we give ear to them and we allow them to speak and influence into our lives. We should not listen to shepherds who sound nothing like Christ. And you want to know what Christ sounds like? He sounds like a person who says, follow me, renounce everything, come and die. And it's, it's that message which made the church so attractive in the first few centuries, which caused them to explode in life and fullness and growth. So we should be on, the, on guard against the influence of those who would steal us away. This doesn't only include the prosperity teachers, although it is, it, that's probably the most clear example of heresy today. It also includes those who would water down the Orthodox faith to include and tolerate sins, which the scripture condemns wholesale. I've, I've been a, a follower of a number of teachers uh, just casually observing their ministry, and it's so amazing to me to watch someone who a decade ago was inspiring and on stages and, and giving presentations to groups of Christians and having conferences, only 10 years later to have renounced his pastorate, turned away from the flock, no longer attend church, and be, be a professing atheist and or New Age philosopher. We ought to be on guard against false teaching, and we ought not to simply receive every teaching. John, the very same one who wrote this passage, recording faithfully the words of Christ, said also in his epistles that we should test the spirits. And testing the spirits assumes that we have a rigor or a mechanism to test them against, and I would submit that that mechanism is the very words of Christ in the Gospels, that Christ's call to take up your cross and follow him is the exact same thing as what it means to be a sheep and to listen to the voice of Christ and not listen to the voice of thieves and robbers. Earlier I said it was important that it was, it was designated thieves and robbers because there is a difference. Thieves are just people who steal without uh, any sort of violence, but robbery, at least in the way that the English word is used, robbery includes violence. And it's important to know that because these false shepherds are not caring for the flock. They're not just simply not protecting against wolves. They themselves are actually doing harm to the sheep. I, I don't know if you know any shepherds. I don't know very many. I know probably only one person who's involved with livestock. But I can easily guess that it's probably not conducive to the health of the flock to beat them with canes. And yet so often, churches tolerate teachers who abuse the flock and abuse the people, giving them teaching that is frankly not conducive to their growth. We ought to emulate Christ in our preaching and teaching, and so as to call the people to come and follow this one who brings us into the love of the Father. So false teachers who preach heresies and strange doctrine, doctrines, who deny the orthodox faith as it's understood in when our estimation to be the proper uh, representation of the creeds, the early church councils, those people should be named and identified and warned against. Unless you say that you're touching the Lord's anointed, Paul does it in his epistles. And I, I don't think that John the Baptist calling out the Pharisees, calling them a brood of vipers, is a violation of the spirit of grace. If John the Baptist were alive today, we would probably accuse him of getting off of message. We'd probably say, John, you've, you've messed up the gospel. You're not being gracious. You're calling people bags of snakes. That's what a brood of vipers means. We, we, we couch the language so much in the King James. He calls people who are religious leaders in that day, he calls them out on their hypocrisy and calls them brood of, brood of vipers or a bag of snakes. 
a brood of vipers is a place where snakes multiply and they have more snakes and they give birth to other snakes and it's terrible. And he's identifying these people who are supposed to be the light of Israel, the teachers of Israel, as the very ones who are in league with a great serpent that we saw at the beginning of this book. And so for John the Baptist to use that sort of language today would be completely untolerated. Jesus went a little bit further than John. I think Jesus probably uh, is authoritative here. He He said, they are of their father, the devil. He didn't just use the poetic imagery that John used. There are serpents, and there was the serpent earlier in Genesis 3. Jesus identifies them plainly. They're of the father, the devil. And so we shouldn't tolerate false teachers, and we should actively warn our brothers and sisters in Christ against the dangers of their message. They should be named and exposed. To not do so is to let them go in unnoticed, which we're told not to do. So, therefore, Christ as the great shepherd, is the only lasting refuge in this storm of evil and sin that is in the world. It is only by listening to and submitting to Christ that we can understand what it means to be in the flock versus out of the flock or near the gate. Christ describes his purpose of his mission as to save and protect the sheep. Verse 9, I am the door. Here's that beginning of that parallel structure, the two I am the door statements. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Brothers and sisters, by Christ saying that they will be saved, he is not simply meaning that they will go to heaven, that they will be justified and they will be set right in life and their life will now begin to encounter eternal life, which is not, again, dying and going to heaven, but as we'll see, is actually knowing the Father and the Son. Verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Isn't it interesting how, many, how much of false teaching is tied up with taking your money? And yet Jesus taught us plainly, they come to steal. Now we hear this verse, especially if we've grown up in the church, we hear this verse and it's talking, we think it's talking only about Satan. But if you, if you put this verse in the context, really Christ is not talking about just a spiritual enemy. He's talking about all spiritual enemies. The thief comes to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Christ's goal is to bring about true life for the flock. And that life is a here and now life experience. It's not simply justification and atonement and the forgiveness of sins, which only applies in the next age or at the final judgment. It is an inbreaking of the life of the father and the son into now. As Christ is the author of life, true life is knowing him and his father. In John 17, 3, as Jesus is praying that high priestly prayer before he goes and is about to lay down his life, he himself says that eternal life is knowing the father and the son. And he says that he brought them into that life. As we saw in our treatment of John 17 over and over again, Jesus uses past tense verbs. I had a mission to glorify your name and I have Lord glorified it. And so this is what Christ is doing in protecting the flock. And so as the greatest extension of Christ's care or protection for the flock, Christ himself lays down his life for the sheep. Now, many of us are familiar with the core of the gospel that Christ is on the cross taking, a, taking on the penalty that is due for all of those who he would call And that penalty is, of course, the wrath of God on sin. But I want to just submit to you that it is much more inclusive than just the wrath of God. 
And I want to I state that from a biblical theology perspective. When God says to Adam that in the day you eat of it, you will die, Adam simply disregards the Lord's call, eats of the tree, and then doesn't immediately physically die. But we do know that Adam unleashes death into all the wor- world. And he unleashes a curse which shows up and it affects everything in creation. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. Again, if you've been a Christian for a, a good length of time, you may, you may hear some of these verses and you may think, well, how does that fit in with the context? Again, Christ is using the, the identification of true and false shepherds. And yet when we hear this idea of the good shepherd laying down his life, we think of him going to the cross, not laying down his life being consumed by those who are coming to attempt to attack the flock. I just want to submit that it's both and. It is both that Christ is receiving wrath on the cross, paying a penalty of sins, but it also is him interceding or interposing himself at the very brunt of the attack that is coming against the flock. He puts the flock first before his own life. By this, Christ indicates that he will lay down his life for the disciples because Satan's desire is, at this point, to scatter the disciples. When Jesus is about to go to the cross, Peter is told that he will deny him. Uh, Christ interacts with Peter and gets him to understand that Peter will fall. And then he says that Satan has demanded permission to sift him. And Christ then says, but I have prayed for you. And when you are restored, go and strengthen your brothers. Christ already before the restoration of Peter that we saw last week is in the business of getting Peter ready to be one who would care for the flock and restore those who are falling away. Satan's hatred of the redemptive plan of God is almost always channeled against the activity of the church as to, so as to delay or slow or hinder her mission. Because we know that Satan cannot be ultimately effective, and he knows this quite well, he's already lost in history, he's already been crushed, as Genesis 3.15 says, uh, his only hope now is just to, because of his hatred of God, his only hope right now is to simply hinder or prevent or attempt to downplay or diminish the work of the church as she is powered by the Spirit in the world to carry out the same mission of our Good Shepherd. So his goal is always to attack the flock. And it's no surprise that that has not changed since the time of Christ. Therefore, Christ's substitutionary death in this context, must be understood not just as wrath removal and and death receiving because of Adam's unleashing of death through his sin, but also as him stepping in between the enemy and the flock. That is to say that Peter has been, Satan demands to sift Peter like wheat, and so what does Christ do? He goes to the cross in which he experiences the agony of physical suffering, and the wrath of of God against sin, and he himself, as it were, is the one who becomes sifted and undone. As we look in the Psalms, the Psalms talk about Christ on the cross saying that his heart is like like wax, which melts away within him, and his bones are brittle, and they they dry up, and, and his tongue becomes 
uh, thirsty and is, is like a, a desert. This is what Christ goes through in the cross. He steps in between the flock and the enemy and interposes and takes the assault on himself. So as the good shepherd, knowing the sheep, his knowledge is completely perfect. This harkens back to what we were saying earlier. He knows his, the, he knows his sheep and he calls them by name and he knows them perfectly. He knows who are in the fold and those who have snuck in. Verse 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Already we're beginning to see through Christ's shepherding of the church, we're beginning to get a glimpse into the heart of the the Father and the Son, seeing their relationship. Verse 16, and I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One of the popular false teachers of the last two centuries is a guy by the name of Joseph Smith who interprets this verse when Jesus says, I have other sheep who are not of this fold. Joseph Smith interprets them as the Native Americans who live in South America and North America at the time 2,000 years ago. And he believes that Jesus actually came to this continent and preached to them directly. And we're all okay in naming Joseph Smith as a false teacher, but if he was still living, we wouldn't be cool with it. But anyway... I'm beating a dead horse. Christ's knowledge of his fold allows him to foresee the inclusion of the Gentiles. This this idea that there are other sheep who are not of the fold of Israel who will be brought in and engrafted and brought into this fold, he foresees that as the great prophet and is able to prophesy and know because of his extreme power and authority that he will be successful in bringing them into the fold. And this activity actually is the foundation for the unity of the church. He says at the end of verse 16, so there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason why there is one flock and one shepherd is because Christ is still gathering his flock today. Christ has not abandoned his church. He has not left her. He has not forsaken her. He is still active through the ministers of the gospel, wherever the gospel is faithfully preached in the power of the spirit, a message of grace and a message of Christ's coming kingdom. Christ is still active and gathering. And Christ is active and gathering in order to be the source of the foundation for the church's unity and fellowship and communion. Christ's knowledge of his fold is the basis for all of this, not our desire to reach the world. So many Christians teach John 17, and they teach it as, uh, they teach that passage where Christ talks about uh, that the world would know that they sent him. And we, we of course, agree with that, that, that the love among the disciples is a clear sign of Christ's uh, calling them and drawing them, and also Christ being the Messiah. But it is not simply that. The reason why we have unity in the church, the basis for that, is because Christ is the good shepherd and the chief shepherd. It is not because we want to, to, to reach the lost world. And I think that that is actually one of the reasons why the church is so divided today is because we have changed our emphasis from unity of Christ being the good shepherd, him being the center of the church, to we need to be unified so that we can reach the world. And it's, it's actually this backdoor sense of insignificance and irrelevancy that we have allowed to kind of tug on our heartstrings to, to get us to bemoan the fact that the church is so divided. I think if we were to rightly understand our division as a denial of Christ's good shepherdness, then we would actually see f- fruit in that repentance. 
I, I think it's telling that we have so many uh, publishing mediums today. Like, for example, there's a, if you, if you read this magazine, I'm not trying to belittle you, and I've probably read articles in this magazine. I just think the title of the magazine isn't great, but it's called Relevance. As if, you know, we, these are articles about how the church can eventually become relevant to a culture that is mostly not listening. But I believe that we have become mostly irrelevant because we're preaching a gospel that doesn't have anything to do with what people experience in real life. Nevertheless, Christ's knowledge of his fold is the basis for this unity and his shepherding is the foundation for the communion of saints. When we declare in the creeds that I believe in the communion of saints, we taught on this about two or three years ago, we believe that through Christ, because he lives, the church has life together through him. That although Abraham and Isaac and Jacob have died in body, their souls are with the Lord, waiting the final resurrection, and the church really does have a unity and a fraternity and a communion together. That you can say, not because of your own merit or any, anything that you've done well, but because of Christ being the good shepherd, having life in himself, because he has that life, you can say, I'm related to these great uh, disciples, great fathers of the faith, that I'm a brother with Abraham. We always sing that song, Father Abraham had many sons. I like that song, but I'm going to sing it, Brother Abraham. I don't know. I got nothing else. Um, the, the point being that, that you should not see yourself just as a Christian in a dying culture who's trying to bear fruit by preaching an authentic vision and an authentic gospel. You should also recognize that you are, by, by the nature of Christ's shepherding of the flock, you are a part of a great community of the redeemed. When we worship on Sundays, not just at the time of singing songs, but also the, at the time of participating in the meal, we are fellowshipping with, through the Spirit of God, the church throughout the ages and in every place. There is a communion of saints. There is a fellowship of the redeemed. And the, the Reformers, I think, rightly describe this as the difference between the church visible and the church invisible. Another way to put it is the church militant and the church victorious. That is, the, the, the members of the church who have already passed away, their struggle has ended, and they cheer us on from heaven. And although we do not uh, participate in any fellowship with them in, a, in an earthly sense, there really is, in the Spirit of God, a, a fraternity and a communion there. And so that is the basis for all love for fellow Christians. Though we may disagree with them on certain points, though we may wish to admonish them to come up to a higher and more pure biblical understanding of a particular doctrine or issue, we still have a fellowship with them through Christ. And so by this knowledge, by the knowledge that Christ has for his flock, Christ reveals to us a great understanding of the relationship between the Father and the Son. This was what I was mentioning earlier, that, that Christ tells us about the, Father, uh, the Father's love for him because of his mission. Those of you who are in the theology class that we mentioned, you're going to hear one or two terms that you'll probably understand. The rest of you, I'll, I'll briefly explain them. But this, as I said earlier, is the most profound and soul-satisfying activity that a person, an image-bearer of God, can do, is to peer on and, by grace, see into the nature of God himself. In this passage, we're given a glimpse of God's sovereignty and foreknowledge colliding with God's redemptive plan in history. 
And at this point, we turn to verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me. Now, hold on a second. Christ is about to tell us why the Father, who is eternal and magnificent and glorious and sovereign and all-powerful and unending and unceasing, and his own reason for existence, his aseity, He's about to describe the father's love for the son. So we must listen closely. He says, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Christ connects, here you go, theology students, the ontological being of God with the economic being of God. That is to say, God in his person, who he is as father, son, and spirit, has an eternal love and fellowship and communion in himself, not lacking anything, not, not needing the world, not needing to create, but in himself, he is fully satisfied. And yet Christ connects it to the redemptive plan that after not only seeing Adam's fall, but eternally knowing and having something to say about it, Christ eternally said yes to the call of the father to come and lay down his life that he may take it up again. That is the greatest thing I've ever heard. That God and his knowledge eternal and unending and complete omnipotence and omniscience would understand and see and know and have something to say about the sin of Adam before it happens. And yet the father loves the son for this very reason that the son wishes to do the will of the father. Verse 18, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. This is so important if we're to rightly understand the mission of Christ in redeeming sinners. He does not do so out of necessity. God does not need to save. He desires to save. Not because of deficiency in himself, nor compulsion. And this is where so many who war against the nature of the cross being a substitutionary atonement get it wrong. Christ says explicitly, no one takes my life from me. That includes the Father. Christ does not do the will of the Father in order to earn the Father's approval, but rather it is in the nature of the Son to love the Father so as to be willing and yet even anticipating to say yes to that call to come and die. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. I love this verse because what it says to me is that Christ is fully orchestrating events intentionally going to the cross, knowing full well what will happen when he enters that city. We saw this five weeks ago at the triumphal entry where Christ enters into a city full of murderers and haters of God, intentionally provoking them to kill him. This is an amazing thing. Christ is not a victim at the cross. That's what you have to see. He is victorious, and it's not like he got tricked into victory or he was confused about his victory. He knew what he was going to do, and he lays, his down, lays down his life in order to take it up again. I love this passage because it reminds me of Moses and Aaron as they're doing battle with the, the uh, wizards of Egypt. Now, this will mess up your theology a little bit. The wizards of Egypt, the, the sorcerers, the magicians, they were able to do everything that Moses and Aaron were able to do up to a point. And one of the things that's interesting as I've been meditating on that passage, this is a complete sidebar and we'll return just in a minute, is that Moses and Aaron were unleashing judgments against them. Everything that they did, unleashing frogs, unleashing locusts, unleashing flies, turning water to blood, the, the magicians were able to do that same thing, 
But I think it's telling that they were never able to undo it. What's the point of, of turning more water into blood? You can't drink it. You can't use it to, to water your crops. Ultimately, the power of the evil one is deceived. And here's how it connects. Moses and Aaron lay down their staves and they become serpents. And so does the enemy. He lays down his staff. And what happens? Moses and Aaron's serpents devour the other serpents. And what happens after that? Moses and Aaron take up their staff again. I think what Christ is saying is that in going to the cross, it is an act of him laying down his authority and power, but in such a complete and pure way that he has authority to take it up again. And this is where the doctrine gets even more beautiful and rich, is that Christ does not simply connect the initial mission to the nature of of God, but he actually shows us another aspect of how God works in time and space. The Father's eternal and unchanging love for the Son is not simply based on relationship, but also on the Son's future action. For God being and doing are not disjoint activities. They're not disjoint ideas. We in the West as Greek-minded people, people who've received an intellectual tradition, have separated being essentially from doing, essentially. And God, being uh, unified in his person, has no difference between being and doing. God does because he is. So Christ's words taken with the harmony of the rest of Scripture show us the unity and harmony within the Godhead. Peter, at at, uh, the day of Pentecost, says explicitly that God raised Christ from the dead. So we see the father raising the son from the dead, vindicating the son's message that he was the son of God and that he is the Messiah, but not only vindicating that message, also identifying him to be the true and right king to sit on the throne of his father, David. It is not just the the father raising the son, but also the son taking up his life. When God does something, therefore, each member of the Trinity is somehow active and involved and participating. We hear later from Paul that if the same spirit who raised Christ from the dead lives in you, then he will also give life to your mortal bodies. The great foundation for our hope of a resurrection at the end of the age. And so we see God working even as the Father does something, the Son is involved, also the Spirit. This is inseparably linked with who God is. Now, this, this verse, as Jesus teaches in John 5, is not in our reading, but I thought it was helpful enough to explain what Jesus is trying to get to, for us to see, that there is no uh, disfellowship, there is no disharmony in God, but rather that God, because of the purity of his love within himself, the love that's shared between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, is so perfectly giving so perfectly loving that the love that he extends to us is real love and it does not eternally subject us into dishonor, but rather it brings us to the point where Paul is able to say rightly that we become partakers of the divine life. This is a glorious doctrine. Jesus teaches about the son and the father in the relationship. For as the father has life in himself, so also he has granted that the Son may have life in himself. Okay, theology students, here we go. Some more terms for you. One one of these terms is the Father's begetting. And that term is actually not very hard to understand. It's the the idea that the Father 
uh, gives life to the son. This is what Jesus says here. The father gives life to the son. Um, in this idea, this, this eternal begetting, which happens, is simply a logical ordin- ordinary uh, doctrine. That is, it, it concerns who the son is, but not so as to eternally subject the son to dishonor to the father. Jesus says, I and the father are one. And so Jesus is explaining to us that this eternal begetting is so perfect, not only the eternal begetting, but also the son's filiation, that is the son's reception of that life is so perfect that the father is said to have life in himself and the son also to have life in himself. This is a paradoxical doctrine which cannot be understood perfectly, but we can understand it by the grace of the Holy Spirit in a limited way. What this means is that the Father is so perfect in his love giving, it's so perfect, or it's just perfect, perfect doesn't have a condition or a qualifier on it. The Father's love, as it is perfect, is total. That is to say, he does not dishonor the Son by giving the Son the authority to have life in himself. And that aseity of God in the Father and the Son is so wonderful, so beautiful, so even hard to express or or understand, so ineffable, so hard to peer into, but that eternal begetting is so complete so as to present a time that there is no time where the Father is and the Son is not. The love gift granting of the Father does not subject the Son to dishonor, and neither does it do that to the church. If you are fearing heaven, I've, I've had this come up so many times in my pastoral counseling that I think it's important to understand rightly. If you are fearing what we see in Revelation, the lamb who was slain, bearing still the marks of suffering, if that causes you grief, then you do not understand the love of the Son of God. He does not eternally bear the marks of his atonement in order to shame you into remembering your sin for all eternity. He loves you in a love that calls up and brings into life and brings into fellowship, completely washing and separating. Assuredly, we, would n- we will never forget for all eternity the glory and the necessity of our sin, but we will never approach it in a way that is eternally condemning or shameful. The love that God brings us into is a perfect love. This love that Christ gives us, the love between the Father and the Son, is the source of all blessing and grace in our lives, whether it be in our personal life, our family, or our church. And indeed, as that love continues to work out in our relationships, it should affect all of life, all of society. In seeking to live this love, we ought to emulate our our wonderful good shepherd. We are called to follow the lamb wherever he goes. And if that means to go into suffering, then we go into suffering. If that means to go into positions of dishonor and missions that are terrible, then that means we go there. The reason why is because we have a source of love that is unending, eternal, and honoring, and restorative. And that is what it means for Christ to bring together one flock and one fold. So let's pray. Father, we ask you that you would captivate us with an understanding of the Father and the Son and the Spirit indeed. God, I pray that you would give us a desire for meditation upon you. And I I pray that you would forgive us, Lord, for as as a church throughout the last few centuries for for so often uh, focusing on man alone that even talking about the Father and the Son seems not normative. 
Father, I pray that you would grant us a restoration of teaching in the church in America today, that we would become you-focused, that, that we would connect everything that we do, that we say, to who you are, essentially. That you would give us not only minds to understand, but hearts to appreciate. Father, we ask you that you would glorify your son in us, that you would give to us that very same love that you have for him. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.